Chester will come to me and sort of say, hey, I've got a whole pallet worth of ham hocks because we're making Christmas hams. <laughs> Is there something you can do with it? So I guess part of that understanding comes from not only what you make, but also what's left and what can you do with that particular thing? Because we try and minimize waste as much as possible. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. After working with some of Melbourne's most influential chefs, Mark Glenn was building an appetite for charcuterie and the best ways to connect with local producers. When the pandemic landed, a unique opportunity presented itself where he could explore the virtues of both in a multifaceted venue and the connections and creations he's helped foster have created one of the country's most unique offerings. Mark, you're looking after 17 venues from a la carte restaurants all the way to a smokehouse. What does it take to look after such a big beast? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty extensive, but um, I'm pretty lucky to have some really, some really good people um, without you know, that kind of core group of people that do all of the individual places, then um, my job wouldn't really be possible. But um, yeah, I guess it's kind of many hands make make light work. Um, but it's pretty it's pretty extensive. But at the same time, it's a lot of fun. I don't really know of anywhere else in Australia that's got, you know, quite the opportunity that we do as far as having a vast array of, of uh, offerings, but then also, you know, the garden and the orchard and all those kind of things as well. Well, tell us a bit about Pialago Estate because it is quite extraordinary. There's so many uh, parts to the to the operations there and so many offerings. Yeah, so it's uh, 10 minutes out of the Canberra centre, I guess, um, and just over the road from the airport. Um, it's 56 acres. Uh, there's um, sort of everything from, yeah, like you said, an a la carte restaurant through to a smokehouse and event spaces and a pizza shop and a cafe and all of those kind of things. Um, we are pretty lucky in the fact that we have on that 56 acre property, there's an orchard with just over a thousand fruit trees um, with sort of 16 different varieties. So all the stone fruits, you know, cherries and plums and nectarines and all that kind of thing, all the way through to sort of persimmons and figs and pomegranates and everything. So um, there's a lot to sort of process and I guess it's a very different way of working to anywhere else I have been, let alone know of, just as far as the scale of it. Um, and then we have the, we call it the market garden, which is sort of 75 uh, beds for vegetables that are about 50 metres long. Um, and then we have the vineyard, which we grow some grapes to and we send them to uh, a guy named Alex from Collector Wines, and then he makes the wine for us and sends them back to us. Um, and then we have an olive grove where we press the olives to make the olive oil that we serve in the restaurant. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty special in that regard, just because I, like I said, I can't think of anywhere else that has that sort of um, ability. But you know, it does take a lot of a lot of hands, and um, you know, the garden is very much um, sort of worked on with a whole a whole team so i sort of work with a guy named peter um and he's a very very intuitive sort of um gardener and he's got a team with him but he definitely does the the work and the and the heavy lifting and the digging and all those kind of things um but 
I work with him and we sort of plan, you know, two seasons ahead. So what even though we're in spring now, we're sort of planning for what I want to use on menus come autumn. So, you know, um, I'll sort of go to him and say, oh, I want to put, you know, um, alpine strawberries on the menu, which are just coming in right now. And he'll sort of say, that's fine, but it's going to take – 12 weeks for you to get your first fruit and even then you're not going to be able to use them for another six weeks and then the season's only going to be two months long so you've got eight weeks with that dish how many dishes do you think you're going to do and i'll give him a number maybe 100 and he'll say all right if you need 100 and you've got six strawberries on each plate then this is how many we need to plant um which is a real fun exercise um he's you know he's really really great in sort of learning quickly with what i want but also he's taught me so much about the length of time things take and just a real understanding of what it takes to get food to the point where you can serve it. Um, there's been some pretty pretty wild stories of, I mean, you can plan for everything, but at the end of the day you are sort of subject to, to the weather and the world and everything. So, um, for example, last year we were just coming up to Christmas and so, you know, in the theme of Christmas, all the menus have lots of cherries and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we should have been getting about 300 kilos of cherries a week um, for about sort of six to seven weeks because we have two varieties. And then when we got our first crate, which is about, I don't know, 50 kilos-ish, um, there was a rain followed by a really hot day followed by heaps more rain. And then every single one of those cherries that we were meant to get went to rot overnight. Yeah, so... You've really got to be able to sort of pivot with it. But at the same time, you know, anything, any produce that I get is picked literally that morning, if not just before service. So the quality that we get is like nothing I've ever worked for um, or worked with, I should say. Everything, you know, we put up a big sort of blackboard in the dining room that sort of says what we've got in the garden at the moment and what we're using on the menu. And I think at the moment there's 28 items that are all grown on site. Um, and that obviously doesn't include all the sort of smokehouse stuff and all that kind of thing. That's just what's coming out of the garden right now. So, Well, your history is um, littered with the most amazing restaurants in, in, in Melbourne through your career, but where you are now, there is the smokehouse element, which you just mentioned. Tell us a bit about that and, and what you're producing. Uh, so uh, we have a really, really talented guy out there named Chester, Chester Mock. Um, he, we work really, really closely together because obviously everything that comes out of the smokehouse, we, in, we sort of try to intertwine with our menus and our offerings. So, um, we sort of in the restaurant serve them with, um, you know, we always do charcuterie boards for people to start and all the dishes will sort of have items that come from the smokehouse because obviously we're very proud of what we do and, you know, we get to really control that process, which is, um, probably a really big part of why I sort of moved out here to sort of, you know, take on such a big role was just to really be able to control that process from, you know, seed or raw ingredient all the way through to, to plate. Um, but the smokehouse, we sort of product wise, you know, we do all of the, the typical sort of, you know, smoked salmons and cured salmons and poultry and that kind of thing. And then obviously a pretty big range of pork. Um, our bacon has won loads and loads of awards over the years um, and still, continues to um we also do sort of like slower cured sort of dry age kind of things like pork copper and wagyu brazola and 
um, duck prosciuttos and all that kind of thing that take a little bit more time. Um, but the quality, again, is sort of really testament to the amount of work that goes into it down there with those guys. Um, and, you know, everything that we use is completely free range. Um, the pork that we get is from Gurali Farms. So we work really, really closely with, you know, all of the all of the people that are to do with pork in, in Australia, um, you know, with World Bacon Day and all that kind of kind of stuff. Um, but it's really about understanding, um, you know, and Chester's just amazing at it. He just really understands the the sort of requirements that we need in a restaurant, but also that we can put into a, a retail setting so that people can go and, you know, buy their bacon, which is real proper bacon. <laughs> what I mean by that is um, I think the regulation means that whatever water weight that you lose in a product when you're curing and um, smoking, so for example, bacon, um, if you lose 20%, you're allowed to pump 20% worth of water back into it. Um, we don't do any of that. So all of ours is very sort of natural process, um, old world kind of style. So when you buy that product, it's very much a premium range. You briefly touched on the connection that you have with farmers. Tell us a bit about more, a bit more about that, and and what's important in a pig for what you do with a smoker. Um, so obviously, a happy pig is a is a good pig. Um, so like I said, everything's free range. Um, we only sort of source from uh, really high quality farms where we can sort of guarantee that the process has been, you know, they've really been looked after in their life. Um, I guess the consistency of using someone like um, these guys is just to, you know, we know that we're going to get a similar product really regularly. And for the volume that we do, that consistency is always there with them. Um, and I guess just ethically that free range is just super, super important to us. Um, and, you know, that goes along with, you know, our poultry and all that kind of thing as well. Um, I suppose the restaurant is a little bit different because we sort of deal with um, smaller scale. So, you know, again, all of our sourcing is always very paramount to what we do. Um, you know, our fish we get from Bruce Collis down in um, down in Victoria and he flies it up to me, which is very kind of him. Um, all our dairy comes from Tilba, uh, which is just, you know, a couple of hours away. So we sort of try and as much as we, as much as possible, we try and grow or, produce on site but anything else we really just try and find the best quality so that we're sort of making sure that what ends up either you know in the retail store or on your plate is always as good as it can possibly be take us back to when you were young what, what sort of role did food play for you and your family um so <laughs> i guess the reason that i sort of got into food was just because i like to eat um, I was, you know, uh, even though I'm not a, a big guy, I've just always really, really loved food. And I guess when I was young, probably my happiest memories are from, you know, being around uh, a table, whether that's on the very rare occasion that we were able to sort of go out to a restaurant and eat, or whether it was just, you know, Sunday roasts with mum and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess it's a, it doesn't sound like much of a reason to become a, a chef, and I probably never thought about it then, but. I guess it's as good as any, you know, if you like eating then and you like food, then why not, I guess. You've worked for some incredible restaurants, but tell us about the early days. Do you remember the first time you worked in a commercial kitchen? Uh, yeah, so um, <laughs> it's a pretty common story. I was a bit of a, uh, a larrikin at school and all that kind of thing, um, and I sort of needed a 
part-time job while I was there to, you know, make some money so I could go out and party with my mates and carry on and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I got a job as a, as a kitchen ant um, and I did that for the last sort of three or two and a half years that I was at school. Um, and I just really enjoyed um, all of the camaraderie and the banter and the, the intensity. I guess I played uh, a lot of sport when I was younger and it just very much felt the same. You're sort of on a team and you're trying to get to the same goal and I just really sort of resonated with that idea. Um, once I sort of eventually ended up getting kicked out of school, I, <laughs> um, the guy who I was working for, was in a little sort of um, a little place in Melbourne, um, not particularly notable, but he sort of said to me, you've got two choices. You can either come work for me full-time as a chef or you can go and join the army. And I thought kitchen sounded more fun than the army. So um, that's kind of how, how, how it started. And, um, you know, I learned pretty quick just in being a kitchen hand that, you know, if you work fast and you work hard, you get to do some better jobs, you know. So if you were faster than the kid next to you, putting dishes through then you might go you might get to go and plate some salads instead of you know picking up a bin and tipping it out into the skip and getting bin juice all over you at the end of the night so I guess I kind of just learned to um yeah work hard and work fast and you know it's always the kitchen ends are probably the most important part of any kitchen in and I still think about that now um so you know you always get looked after if you work well you know the chefs will always give you a little bit of extra food and they'll always sort of look after you and give you the good bit of meat and all that kind of thing so as a as a kid that loved eating it was kind of win-win really <laughs> in those early years uh, as you're building your career what, what were the really uh, sort of integral moments that helped forge your way forward um so I started in sort of just local kind of cafes and that kind of thing. And I think I just wanted to make some money just so I could hang out with my mates and do that typical sort of, um, you know, late teenage year kind of thing. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later that I sort of realized that I had to, you know, look at it as a choice, as a career or whether I'd go and do something else. Um, and it was kind of then that I decided to go and, work in some, you know, some more serious kitchens where I could actually learn the craft rather than just turning up, doing the job and going home. Um, and there was kind of a few few moments that really sort of stuck with me as far as I remember going to work with um, Andrew McConnell the first time and I was pretty young and still very green. And um, I remember the, the delivery coming from the farm and um, I didn't even know what the farm was called or anything like that because I think it was my first week. And um, I just remember all these, you know, crates and crates and crates of beautiful produce that I'd never seen the quality of before. And um, we got, it was, uh, the, you know, start of the tomato season. So we got about six crates worth of these tomatoes, you know, all different colours and sizes and all that kind of thing. And I've never been a fussy eater, but for some reason I've never eaten tomatoes when I was a bit younger um, and it was because it was always horrible water full tomatoes from the supermarket and I just never liked them. And then, um, yeah, I remember this huge delivery coming in and someone telling me how good they were and I thought they're not going to be any different to any other tomato. And I, I still remember it. They were green zebra tomatoes and it's so prominent in my head that I like everywhere I go, I've always grown them and that kind of thing. And, um, it just completely changed the way that I looked at something so simple. 
So I guess that was kind of the first lesson in really understanding like or the or just getting to the the attitude that I have now where sort of you know produce is everything because if you don't start with a good ingredient then no amount of you know fluff is going to turn it into something beautiful um and I guess there's just also that really lovely idea of sort of seasonality and picking something at the at its prime and using something when it's meant to be used you know as your career developed, you worked for the European, the commoner. Uh, dinner by Heston was was huge in Melbourne for a period of time, but had a short short lifespan. What, what was it like working there? Um, dinner was really formative for me. Um, I'd sort of before that worked in you know a few good places and sort of bounced around Melbourne a bit, um, but. I guess dinner was almost like finishing school for me. Um, it just really, really made me understand the, I guess that sort of attention to detail and quality and consistency that is sort of really, you know, all all good chefs really need to know and understand. And um, it's one of those kitchens where, you know, it's a huge brigade. I think when we started there, there were 52 chefs on the roster Um which quickly shrank because, you know, not everyone wants to do lots of hours and all that kind of thing. Um, so it was a little bit of a tough kitchen in the way that, you know, there was really, really clear lines of right and wrong and there was never that'll do. Um, everything was weighed to 0.01 of a milligram and then everything was checked three times before it was allowed to be served. So, you know, you'd make it, obviously you'd taste it, then you'd take it to a senior, they would check it, They'd say yes or no. Then pre-service, you'd take, you'd get one of the seniors to check it and taste it again, and then it was all so it would also get tasted as it's about to get sent on the plate. So, just the level of um, sort of detail that they worked to was was really really fascinating, and um, particularly you know after a sort of long period of being there, starting to understand um, the dish development process and sort of you know how that all sort of works. Um, it worked out that it took about 18 months for a new dish to get on the menu because of, yeah, I had to go back and forth. So, you know, the the idea would sort of come about between um, Evan and Ash, who were the head chef and the exec back in the UK. And then all the ideas would be sort of put down on paper and we'd test everything 20 different ways. And then Ash would turn up every sort of three months or four months or however long it was, um, and then he'd come in, test all the different versions of it, and then say, this works, this doesn't work, this works, this doesn't work, and then we'd go back to the drawing board and we'd work on those things and alter all the different bits, and then the next time he came back, we'd do the same process. So um, I guess that sort of level of refinement and understanding what they see as the idea of, you know, being a perfect dish or whatever you want to call it, um, just made me really understand the importance of basic things like, you know, checking that everything's right and not going into service with, you know, half full fridges and all that kind of thing, really that sort of organisational type thing. And also, you know, the culture there was, it was, you know, it was a hard kitchen just because of sort of hours and things like that and volume that we were doing. But all in all, it was actually a really, it was a really, really enjoyable experience. And a lot of that was to do with, the original sort of senior team being there and, you know, you never heard a, ra- a raised voice in that kitchen. You never heard anyone yelling or, 
you know, swearing or any of that kind of stuff. It was always very, very calm. And um, I guess that taught me a lot as far as how to, how to approach, you know, sort of managing other people and um, having a demeanor. And I remember once when uh, Ash came in, I said to him, I don't understand how you um, can have, you know, 25 chefs on a service and, you know, you never sort of, you never get frustrated or get mad or anything like that. And um, his response to me was um, the moment that you raise your voice or, or, you know, get angry is the moment you've lost control of the situation. And I think that's something that's really sort of really stuck with me because, um, you know, as a young kid everyone sort of gets into that system of you know carrying on a little bit because that's how the people above them used to do it and all that kind of stuff um but that really really sort of changed the way that i thought about you know teaching other people and the habits that you need to get into so that the people that you're teaching have good habits later on as well the recipe development uh, systems in place there at dinner by Heston. Do you, do you have any um, pork dishes that you can tell us about from that time that exemplify that process? Um, so it was a pork belly dish. Um, so it was sort of spelt grains cooked out with um, mushrooms and then uh, a very, very laborious sauce. Um, it was, there was, you know, a pork reduction with a cream reduction that had to sort of be set in a fridge and it set almost like a marshmallow consistency. And then you'd, you know, pull it out of the gastro tray once it was chilled, portioned into 25 gram portions. And then that was what you were allowed to use for service per portion. Um, during service, you'd have to, you know, one piece of that with 10 pieces of mushrooms and, you know, 20 grams of spelt. And then you'd warm it all through, season it with a little bit of sherry vinegar and salt, and then it would get checked twice on the way up just to make sure. And that's not even the pork belly itself. So then you know, so you'd you'd brine the pork, you'd brine the pork belly and take the ribs off it. Um, Twenty-four hour brine, and then out of that process, you'd grill them in the Josper oven to kill any sort of bacteria, and then we'd cook them in a water bath um, for, oh, from memory, I think it was. 36 hours, um, and then it would get plunged into an ice bath, chilled until it was properly cold, and then you'd portion a pork belly and, you know, you'd probably lose 20% of it just because the, um, you know, towards the top end where the shoulder is, the fat um, is too much for a portion. So you'd lose a section out of that, and then you'd have to trim it so it was perfectly rectangular, and then you'd take the skin off it and score it and all this kind of stuff, and then... Then it was finally ready for you to use during service. So you'd warm it up in a water bath and then you'd sort of finish it on a little plancher grill. Um, and then even then, if it wasn't the right ratio of fat to fat to meat, then um, you'd have to cook another one in the middle of service. So it's pretty, um, yeah, it's very sort of very detailed and very um, laborious. But, you know, it was that kind of restaurant and that's very much, you know, what. Ash and Heston have always sort of done is that super detail-oriented kind of food. What was it like for you going from that environment to working with Andrew McConnell at Cumulus Inc.? Um, it was actually a bit of a breath of fresh air, to be honest. Um, you know, dinner was amazing for all of the reasons that I just spoke about, but because it took so long to get things done as far as dish changes and things like that, it sort of becomes a little bit monotonous because you're doing the same thing and it becomes a little bit repetitive. Um, and, you know, I've worked with Andrew once before um, and I knew that 
for me, my next step was to sort of move into something a little bit more senior and a bit more, um, a bit more involved in sort of, you know, menu development and all that kind of thing. Um, so I moved to the McConnell group um, and I sort of went in as head chef of Cumulus Up to begin. Um, and that was complete opposite to dinner. <laughs> there were, you know, three of us in the kitchen and we do 150 covers and some people would eat 10 items and other people had just come in for a glass of wine. And, um, you know, we were very much involved with Give Me The Sink at the same time, but it was just very, very different, um, much more relaxed, but still really, really focused on really good quality producers and just doing delicious food. Um, and I think that was the biggest sort of difference between the two was, um, you know, Cumulus is all about just really, really good produce treated and not messed with too much, um, treated with a bit of respect and just let what that particular ingredient or um, produce is, just let it speak for itself because, you know, nature's already done most of the work, whereas at dinner, you know, it was quite the opposite. You get a cucumber and do 15 different steps to it and all of a sudden it's a fluid gel. So, um, <laughs> but the other part of that was, you know, Andrew and um, his business really, really invest in their staff. Um, you know, they put me through a whole bunch of sort of management courses and really invested me, invested in me quite a lot. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll always be thankful for that. They, um, they just have a way of operating and I don't think I've, yeah, I still think that they're the best operators that I've I've seen. Um, but, you know, you, you'll never talk to anyone that's ever had a bad meal in any of his restaurants either. You know, the quality is always number one. Um, and then all the rest of it sort of comes, just follows in behind that, I guess. Do you have any stories of, of what it speaks like to work with someone like Andrew McConnell? Um, <laughs> yeah, he's um, he's funny. I remember doing a... Um, uh, an offsite. We went out to this little winery, and it was only a it was a lunch for for ten people. And um, we there was a little wood fire there, and he'd sort of um, written a menu and sort of came to me and said that we were going to do this lunch together. And so you know I prepped it all and got it all organised and got out there and um, you know crack it on, making sure that I was ready to go because I didn't want to be in the weeds when he turned up. <laughs> And, um, yeah, we, you know, we started cooking and he was sort of just checking through things and all that. And um, where we were doing this, we were roasting a whole rack of veal in this wood fire oven. And um, we were sort of going back and forth about the best way to do it. And um, then the guests started arriving and uh, he obviously went out to greet them and talk to them and all that kind of thing. And, um they sat down and he came back in and he said sort of we had a clam dish that he wanted to do that was served with this um like this brewery which is sort of a, a um a stock that you sort of um emulsify with um aioli and we so he sort of said get the clams in get the clams in and i said all right no problem and i ran over to the wood fire and i got them in and i ran over to you know start getting the rest of the dish together and i jumped back over and i pulled the clams out and i sat them on a little warming tray or a little warming spot next to the next to the oven, so they'd stay there. And I ran back over to start getting all the bits and pieces together. And he came back in and said, "Oh, wait, wait, wait on those clams." And I said, "Oh, all right. How long have I got?" And he said, "Oh, I'll let you know." I said, "All right." And then um, he came back a minute later, and uh, he moved the clams out of my sight, and then opened the wood fire when my back was turned, and then opened the wood fire door and said, "Hey." You burned the clams. 
And so I panicked and ran over and then he just smiled at me and then walked back over to talk to everyone else. Um, so, yeah, Andrew, Andrew's great. He's fiercely intense about quality, um, but he's also, you know, he's a, he's a good guy as well. You mentioned you moved to Canberra for the job at Pialago Estate. You moved during a time when there was a lot of lockdowns and in the middle of the pandemic. What, what was it like for you moving at that time? Um, I guess I saw, I just saw the state of affairs as not really getting better for much longer. So, um, I think I was about seven months deep into the first Melbourne lockdowns. Um, we'd opened once during that period for sort of a fortnight. Um, you know, Andrew and everyone else really looked after me. They gave me a gave me a job at Meatsmith, so I sort of became a butcher for a while and then we started doing takeaway and all that kind of stuff. And we managed to open for, I think, two weeks um, and then we were shut back down. Um, and it just sort of kept going on and I sort of just took an outside look at the situation and just thought I just didn't see Melbourne getting back to any kind of normalcy for a really long time. And... Um, yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm kind of right. You know, they're still only just starting to now. So I've been here just over a year. Um, so yeah, I guess I, at that point, I sort of made the decision that I didn't want to sort of sit around and twiddle my thumbs and wait for wait for it all to pass. Um, and then the yeah, the opportunity at Pielago came up, and um, just the ability to put things on plates rather than in paper bags and takeaway containers was pretty pretty inviting. But, um, you know, given the opportunity to work with a garden and an orchard and a team the way that I do now, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a very different world as far as the, the way to work and the organisation that goes into things. But, um, yeah, I guess I, um, I guess I just saw the, the writing on the wall as far as how long the, the COVID thing was going to stick around for and... Uh, yeah, that was that was the motivation. I don't think if you asked me if I was ever going to move to Canberra before that, I would have agreed, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, your time at Meatsmith and, um, and also Cumulus Up in many instances, did, did that give you a greater understanding of, of pork and charcuterie and, and that side of things? Uh, yeah, it did. Um, Meatsmith, obviously, just through... Um, that kind of uh, being exposed to different cuts and joints and that type of thing. Um, at Cumulus, I obviously learned a pretty big respect for the sort of charcuterie that we were we were getting um, because it was always just the very best. You know, if you got if you got prosciutto, it was San Daniele. If you got, you know, it was always it was always quality number one because it's such a simple thing that if it's not the best, then what's the point? Um, but probably before that is where I sort of learnt more about charcuterie, and that was when I was working um, at the European with Ian Curley. Um, he's obviously very focused on that kind of you know nose to tail kind of thing, um, and I was a I think I was a CDP on the source section, and um, it's a pretty that business is quite big and it's multifaceted. You know they've got the city wine shop and the supper club and all that kind of stuff. Um, which means that next door they've got a um, a prep room and a butchery. So I sort of turned up and started working away and realised that all of the interesting things were sort of done back of house. You know, all the sausages were made 
in the butchery and, you know, all the carving was done back there. And, you know, as a sauce cook, you'd turn up and, you know, everything would be there and you just collect everything and then you just have to cook on service and make sure that, you know, your cuisons are right. Um, so I just started turning up early and going and hanging out in the butcher shop for a, for a while um, each day. And, you know, that just meant I, I still remember the first time I walked into the into the cool room in there and there was just there would have been six whole pigs just separated into into parts and you know a couple of legs of venison just sort of hanging everywhere and you know a whole sort of display fridge full of um you know dry cured meats and you know hanging legs that were going to be in there for over a year and it just um that was really that really sort of um made me realize how um in depth that kind of process is um I'd sort of toyed around with it a little bit earlier on, you know, I'd made my own lardo and my own sort of pancetta and things like that. But um, obviously they were sort of running a whole program and um, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting to see what they could make, but then also just how they use things. Um, some, you know, a lot of charcuterie stuff, particularly really high grade or high quality, you sort of just, you shave it and you eat it and you might have a bit of pickles with it or whatever it might be. But, I guess what they were doing was still very high quality, but they were using a lot of it to cook with, um, you know, so the same way that you, you know, um, make carbonara and things like that. They were sort of making these products, but then not just shaving it to, sli uh, to slice it and serve it, but to use it in a dish that they wouldn't use for six months from now. Um, and that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of it, I guess. The smokehouse at Pialago Estate was one of the lures for you to move to Canberra and take on this huge project. What what have you learned about pork and, and smoking uh, things in your time here? Um, probably the volume is the is the biggest thing. And like I said, you know, Chester has a real art with um, being able to sort of, you know, um, understand volumes and timings and that kind of thing. Um, as an example, we sort of, you know, we're just starting to start all the processes for making Christmas hams this year, um, which is a, you know, it's a huge undertaking. Um, and we sort of share ovens and that kind of thing just because they physically don't have the space down there to be able to make as many hams as um, they need for for what we're going to sell with our retail customers. Um, so we, you know, we'll have lots of conversations around that. But then also Chester will come to me and sort of say, hey, I've got, a whole pallet worth of ham hocks because we're making Christmas hams and people don't buy ham hocks that much. <laughs> can you, is there, is there something you can do with it? Um, and so then it's sort of, you know, so I guess part of that understanding comes from not only what you make, but also what's left and what can you do with that particular thing? Cause we try and, you know, minimize waste as much as possible. I mean, with the garden, we are essentially at zero waste from the year that I've been there. Um, anything that we can't utilize ends up back in the garden as compost, which feeds the garden that we're then taking from again. Um, so there's a real sort of um, underlying ethos of sort of minimizing waste and that kind of thing. So, you know, Chester said, oh, can you use up some ham hocks for me? Because we're going to have a lot. And so, you know, this, since we've reopened, I've put on a, a smoked ham hock dish just with some, um, you know, some broad beans and some, my favorite new ingredient is broad bean leaves. And the reason is because when you get them through a farm, 
that picks them that morning and you get them that afternoon, they taste completely different to what they taste when you pick them fresh. And so, you know, we pick them just before service and they just taste almost as prominent as a, as a broad bean, but a little bit more floral. Um, so, you know, we just sort of use two really, really beautiful things and that's the smoked ham hock and broad beans. We use all the flowers and all their leaves and all that kind of thing and we make a macadamia puree and then during service we just sort of warm them all through together in a really light pork stock with lemon um, and lots and lots of herbs and then we serve it with a macadamia puree and it's – I went to <laughs> I went to my um, – front of house or the F&B manager. His name's Jeremy, who's very, very good, um, but very typically French. And when I told him that we were going to do a ham hock dish, he sort of looked at me and said, I don't want to be harsh, but do you think that's a bit basic? Uh, and I was like, you know what? You're probably right. As in, you know, it's the kind of thing that you find in cafes and things like that. Um, but at the same time, it's been one of our biggest sellers and the feedback on it is as strong as anything else. And I think that's kind of speaks to, you know, using or the, our mentality of trying to use everything so that we don't waste things, but then also trying to create something that's more than the sum of its parts. What do you love about what you do? Uh, sometimes everything. <laughs> no, I, I really, I mean, yeah, for me, the biggest thing is just the access to produce that, no one else has, um, particularly in Canberra. I mean, it's a it's a pretty small town compared to Melbourne and that kind of thing. But even so, I mean, in Melbourne, there's I couldn't think of anywhere that has the access that we have, or the you know the depth and the sort of um, intersection between the different parts of the business. Having the ability to do that, and then for me to sort of also have on the other end of that, Chester to be able to come to me and say, "Hey, I've got this product that." we're not going to be able to utilize as much, but is there something you can do with it? I just feel like there's a really beautiful sort of symbiotic nature to that sort of style of cooking and actually using everything that we can and, you know, everything out of the garden with no waste. I just think, you know, it's a, it's a really lovely way to be able to sort of cook and feed people and to have a bit of a story as well when people come in to sort of, you know, be able to point out the window and say, that's where your olive oil is from and that's where your plums are from and, you know, that's where your salads come from and all that kind of thing is really, it's pretty romantic for a chef, right? It, indeed. And what you're doing at Pialago is extraordinary. Um, we've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear just a bit of your story, Mark. Um, so please keep in touch and We'll catch up again soon. Will do. Thanks very much. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.